If you aren't, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, if you aren't already aware, it is Thanksgiving tomorrow. Um, we, uh, we have a bit of a Thanksgiving theme going through our service today. And this is, uh, Thanksgiving is, uh, is a good holiday. It's one we all enjoy. We'll see if we can get the technology. Except for the 2.5 million turkeys that celebrate with us on Thanksgiving. So, but you know, Thanksgiving isn't particularly a Christian holiday. There's many cultures and religions around the world that practice, have some sort of practice of Thanksgiving. In Zambia, there is a tribe, uh, and, and some other southern African countries, there is a tribe, uh, called the Chewa tribe, and they have a, a celebration called the Kalumba Festival. And that's a celebration of thanksgiving for the harvest. And this is clearly, as you can see, these are some of the Guliwankulu, the witch doctors, uh, doing the celebration. So this is clearly not a Christian uh, sort of festival. But cultures around the world do recognize uh, that there is a time for thanksgiving. And so today we want to do that. We want to take time on this Thanksgiving weekend and here in the service today to give thanks to God. To think about the ways that He has blessed us. To think about the, all the ways that we are thankful to Him for, for what He has done in our lives. So when we, when we come to the Bible, we find it's full of references to, of thanksgiving. Of words of thanksgiving. And so being thankful is actually, uh, even though it spans different cultures and different religions, it is also a very biblical concept. I have this book in my library. This is from my grandparents' house. This book is, uh, is uh, copyright 1879. And this book is, is giving uh, devotional readings. And it's, uh, it, it's called The Daily Handbook for Days of Rejoicing and Sorrow. So it's got readings and prayers and hymns to offer for all different, uh, all different uh, events and holidays all different festivals. So it's got things of harvest. It's got things at, at uh, Christmas. It's got, it's interestingly, it's got prayers for women in childbirth. So as you're going into childbirth, it's, it's got some guidance for you there. But in this old book, it's got some wonderful prayers of thanksgiving here. And it's, it's done in this marvelous language that, uh, that, that from 140 years ago. And it says, it's talking about being thanksgiving. And it says, just a, a couple of things it says here, on beholding the full ears of corn and the vines overhung with grapes, he, the believer, lifts up his eyes to heaven and praises the almighty giver of all good who has made so many grains out of one such luscious fruit out of so plain a twig. When the time arrives for the sharp sickle to mow down the corn and for the wain to carry it to the farmyard and the grapes into the press, he receives all these good gifts with a thankful heart. He suffers the goodness of God to lead him to repentance. If we thank and refrain from angering a benefactor who gives us a garment or some food, why should we not praise the first of benefactors who gives us everything? Just wonderful words and use of language there. So we recognize in a Christian sense we have a deep thanksgiving 
a deep thanksgiving. And so our message for today is very simple. To be thankful. Or but among you there must be thanksgiving. You know, sometimes we need to be reminded of the plain things and the things that are obvious in our life. Sometimes the obvious things we tend to overlook. And so today is a day when we stop and, and take time and think about how we're thankful. And so we come to our passage today in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 to 7, and let me read it for you. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Paul was writing here in the church of Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, a church that he did not seem to start himself, but it was a church that he was very familiar with. And we can read about this church in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 18 to 20. Paul was there. He was there at the church uh, in Ephesus for a very short time. He was on his way to Antioch. He was on one of his journeys. He was traveling. And, but he stopped there in Ephesus. And he, uh, he talked, he, he preached in the synagogues there. And it, when he was there, he, or he was there with Priscilla and Aquila, who uh, we read about again and again in the Bible, and he leaves them there at Ephesus to work with the church. Paul goes on and he travels on his journey. He sails from the city of Ephesus. The, Eph the city of Ephesus was a seaport on the Mediterranean. And he sails on and he goes on from Ephesus uh, and he goes on to Achaia. We read later on in Acts chapter 19 that Paul uh, returns to Ephesus. And, uh, and he finds an interesting thing that has happened in the church there. Some of the believers had been baptized by John the Baptist. But they hadn't really understood their salvation and they hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So Paul uh, proceeds to give them a proper understanding of baptism about the baptism of Jesus Christ and of uh, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul ends up staying in Ephesus for two years. So he's, he starts first in the synagogue, going there and teaching. And he finds that's, that, he, that reaches the end of what, what he wants to do there. They become, it says in Acts chapter 19, verse 9, they become obstinate, they become stubborn. They don't want to hear what Paul has to say anymore. So, but he stays in Ephesus. He takes the followers of Christ and he teaches them. They discuss and they debate and they learn. And he ends up staying there a couple years. He has this tremendous impact in the city, in the community there. It, perhaps there's some hyperbole, some overstatement. But it says that the Jews and the Greeks in the whole region heard about Jesus. He and the followers with him there had a tremendous impact in the community. That everyone 
heard about Jesus. doesn't mean they all responded, but they all heard about Him. They all heard about Jesus. There were miracles done. The sick were healed. Demons were cast out. All those terrific things that were going on. There was spiritual healing happening all in uh, Ephesus during the time of Paul. Paul runs into a little problem though along the way. And some silversmiths, the ones that were making the idols, they're going out of business because there's been such a turning to Christ and abandoning of the idols that the idol makers are running out of business. So they start to stir up some trouble for Paul. And Paul ends up leaving after a couple of years there. Later on in his journeys, Paul ends up traveling to Jerusalem, going back to Jerusalem. And as he's in the area, he doesn't get back to Ephesus, but as he's in the area, he calls the elders from the church at Ephesus to come to him so he can say farewell. And the, the, the story of their meeting ends with them embracing with tears and kisses and a love and affection, a deep love and affection that they feel for one another. This is the kind of church that Paul had left. And so this is the church that Paul is writing to, a solid, committed church. And this is the, the letter that we read to this church, to this solid, committed church that is firmly grounded in, by Paul's teaching, is effective in reaching their community. This is a church that Paul knew very well and had a, had a strong emotional attachment to. And so we read, when we read this letter, this is a letter to that church. And when we read it carefully and read the whole thing, we find that Paul isn't writing really any corrections. He in some of his other letters, Paul is writing and he's saying, you know, I, I see this or I hear this about you and you need to correct these things. We don't find that in Ephesians because the church is strong. It's doing well. And so Paul is writing and he himself tells us what he's writing for. He says in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So he's, he's, he's asking for them and he's writing for them to grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. There isn't some big problems that need correction. There aren't some things uh, that, that need to be uh, addressed in the lives of that church. But he's just trying to encourage them. To give them a blessing. To push them on. To deepen their relationship with God. And so that's where we are. That's the letter that we have here. So Paul is writing to them. He's writing to them about unity, of growing together, of growing closer to God, of ways to improve an already strong church. So we can imagine ourselves in the city of Ephesus. It was a large, influential city, a church that Priscilla and Aquila uh, were instrumental in starting, but Paul was strengthening and now we're listening to this letter uh, that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And so we come to Ephesus chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. And we see what Paul writes to them. He says, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, he says, be like God and live a life of love. He says, be imitators of God. He says, Imitate God. What you see in God, that's what you should be doing too. So he says, be imitators of God. And then he tells us, how do we do that? Okay, so be imitators of God. And then he says, live a life 
of love. And that's the first thing that uh, we need to think about here. We need to live a life of love. And then he uses Christ as an example. He goes on and he says, just as Christ loved us. So that's the sort of love that we need to have. Uh, as we need to see how did Christ love us. And he says, how did Christ love us? He gave himself up for us. He sacrificed himself. And his life was a fragrant offering to God. So that's what, sh- what our... Uh, when we think about uh, our lives being a life of love, we can look at Jesus and say, how did He uh, show His love? What what did His love look like? And so we can model our own lives after that. So we live a life of love, demonstrated to us by Jesus. And one of the things about that is sacrifice. We give ourselves up. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, 8, it gives us a, 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 a verse about God's sacrifice. And it says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of sacrifice that Christ, that God gave to us. He sacrificed Himself. While we were still sinners, not worthy of anything, Christ came and lived and died for us. And so... That's how we should be living our lives. A life of sacrifice. God also tells us that we should be holy the way He is holy. That's how we can be like God. And this is kind of the way a a child should be like their parents or often is like their parents. We model what we in our own lives, what we have seen in in our parents' lives. And we become, in a way, kind of like our parents. They become a model for us. Unfortunately, sometimes not a good model for us. But that's, what we, that's the kind of attitude we should have when we see God. <clears throat> we can be holy the way He is holy. That's what He wants us to do. We should be modeling our, our own lives after Him. We should be imitators of God. I have a cousin who we managed to see. I hadn't seen him for a while. We managed to see him this summer uh, when we were on holiday in Calgary. And he and his wife were there. We got together. And afterwards, I was joking with my brother who was also there. And uh, he looks just like his father, my uncle. And it was, it's almost, uh, well, it's a little bit frightening because he was so, in his speech, in his physical appearance, in his mannerisms, he was so much like his father. And I'm sure he didn't, never intended to, to become like that. He never sat down and said, well, I'm going to learn to talk like dad. I'm going to learn to, to look like dad and have the same mannerisms. It's just something that happens. And that's how we should be with our, with our heavenly father. And that's uh, how we should be living our lives, as imitators of God. So Paul is encouraging the believers at Ephesus that they should become more and more like God, our Heavenly Father. Then Paul goes on. So he, first of all, gives them an exhortation to be like God, to, to be like Christ, sacrificing, giving ourselves up, being a fragrant offering to God. That's what we should be like. But then he goes on and he gives us 
the negative side of it. He says, uh, he contrasts this. Paul gives us a string of things that are now unlike God. He's encouraged us to be like God. He's talked about sacrifice. He's talked about being this fragrant offering. Now he says, here's some things that are not like God. These are things you should not be doing. He says, these are things you will not find in God. And they have no place in the life of His children. Look at the contrast here. He says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place. These are not things that should be seen in the people of God. These are things that we should all say no to. These are not things that are proper. These aren't a fragrant offering to God. Instead, they're more like the compost that's been sitting under the sink for a few days too long and smells pretty bad. These are not a fragrant offering. And so he warns the believers, he says, don't do these things. These things are not what we're supposed to be. And he, Paul uses an interesting phrase there. He says, he says, these things should not even be named among you. These things should not even be named among you. And some translations uh, put it, there must not even be a hint of these things. These things shouldn't be things that Christians are identified with. When others look at them, they, they shouldn't, they say, well, the Christians, you know, they're full of these, these kind of things, or we see these things in the lives of the Christians. And Paul is saying there shouldn't even, they shouldn't even be named among you. So when people are describing Christians, they should never ever use these kind of words. These things, there shouldn't even be a hint of them in our lives. These are challenges to us, too that we have to deal with these things. The first group of three that Paul gives, he says sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, or in greed. And he's using here the terms in the broadest sense. He's covering all kinds of sexual immorality. It's not specific ones there. It's all kinds of them. And he goes on and he broadens any kind of impurity. Anything. Anything. And then he says greed. Interesting how greed and sexual immorality uh, get put together there. Of all the sins that Paul could have highlighted there, disobeying parents, being disobedient to their parents, lying, stealing, pride. Why? He picks on these two. He, he highlights these two. Along with the general uh, statement about sin, he picks on two of them. Do you suppose there's any connection between those two sins and the sins that are most common and most besetting in our lives? The things that trouble us the most are greed and sexual immorality. So these are the kind of things that have no place in, a, in, in, in God's holy people. And then he goes on and he, he talks about the words that come from our mouths. Obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. There shouldn't be any of that either. The things that are coming out of our mouths here. There should be, uh, shouldn't be any of that. And this is a problem for us. This is often a problem. The things that come from our mouths uh, often are not, uh, are not good. James talks about them 
In James chapter 3, he says it's a problem to control our tongue. He spends a, a lot of time in, in his letter as James is writing. He talks about the, things, the, the problem of our tongue. And our tongue gets out of control. And he says we can bless and curse with the same tongue. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. And he says in James chapter 3, verse 10, these things ought not to be so. And it's a challenge to control our tongue. How often does that cause us problems? How often do words come out of our mouth before our brains are fully engaged and then we say, oops, shouldn't have said that. I remember one time a few years ago, I had uh, when we were missionaries in Zambia and I was director of our mission, I had a young lady by the name of Tracy working for me. And Tracy had gotten involved in this young man and, and we, we, a number of us knew this young man and he wasn't a, a particularly good reputation. And uh, she was getting pretty serious with him, even, even talking about marriage perhaps. Uh, hadn't really taken any firm steps along that way, but she was talking about marriage. And we were all like, Tracy, we're just not sure this is a, a good fit. You need to be careful here. You should slow down a little. Make sure you really know him. And she, she wasn't really listening. And then eventually after a while, she did, she did break up with him. And then shortly after she broke up with him, uh, she came and she said to me, do you remember, do you remember him? I said, yeah, sure. Well, he's gotten some young lady, he's getting married because he's gotten some young lady pregnant. And before I could even think about it, the words were out of my mouth, well, aren't you glad you didn't marry him? And she, and, I, and as soon as I said it, I thought, oh, <laughs> and she kind of looked at me sideways and then gracefully ignored that comment and we just moved on. But you know, those words were out of my mouth and as soon as I was speaking them, I was like, wow, did I really say that? Fortunately, not, you know, it wasn't a big deal, but it could have been. You know, that could have been very hurtful words. She was good about it, but, uh, uh, but you know, those things just come, don't they? And the words just come out of your mouth. And he's saying we need to be careful about those things. But then interestingly, as Paul writes about all these things we shouldn't do, he says there's one thing we can do, and that's thanksgiving. Think, but th interesting that he picks thanksgiving. Think of all the things he could have said. He could have said show compassion, show mercy, be humble. There's all kinds of qualities that he, that he could have pointed out to us. He talks in... In, in Galatians chapter 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He could have listed those. He could have said, be full with these things. But he picks just one thing. In contrast to those six sins that he's highlighted, he picks one thing, and it's thanksgiving. This is a good thing. He says, this is a good quality. This is something you should do in contrast to all those other things. He says, there should be thanksgiving among you. He says, that, uh, he says, but among you there should not be these things, but among you there should be thanksgiving. And so here we are on Thanksgiving Sunday, and we're being thankful. But it's interesting, Paul spends very little time talking about thanksgiving. He doesn't have to explain it, it seems. He doesn't have to talk about it and clarify it. He doesn't need to make sure people understand what he's talking about, because it must be clear to them. This is, uh, that, that this is what they are to do, to be thankful. The word in Greek there that's, uh, that's used is eucharisto. 
And you see the, the Greek uh, characters and then the Roman underneath it. And it's basically, it just means simply to be thankful, to give thanks. You know, often in translations, it's hard to find a, an, a, an exact translation. But here's one word that comes across easily, simply, and straightforward. Eucharisto, to give thanks, to be thankful. It's not a, a complicated word to translate. Those of you who uh, may be aware of other church traditions, that may be ringing a, a bell to you because in some church traditions they call the Lord's table, which is set before us here today, the Eucharist. And it simply means to, be, to give thanks, to be thankful. And why, why do they use this? Instead of calling this the Lord's table, why do they use the word Eucharist? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11.24, Paul says, after Jesus had given thanks, after Jesus had Eucharisto, they had the Lord's, they, they, they shared the meal together. And so this is uh, what we're doing uh, in a few minutes here uh, this morning, is an expression of thanksgiving. So then we have these sins, all these sins before the thanksgiving. And then he says, be thankful. And then he goes on after and he, he says, he, he describes the kind of people. He, he talks about immoral and impure or greedy people and we should have nothing to do with them. So he first talks about the sin and then he talks about the people who are practicing those sins and are, how we should relate to them. But in the middle of it, it's thanksgiving. This is a very biblical idea, the idea of thanksgiving. We see it in a number of other places. Here in Leviticus, uh, chapter 22, verse 29, he says, when you sacrifice a thanks offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. So here's a, a sacrifice, not for any particular reason, but just out of thankfulness. It's describing coming and giving a sacrifice at the, ta ta at the temple simply because you're thankful. And then... We also see it, interestingly, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah, poor old Jonah here, he's been in the belly of the great fish for three days. Imagine yourself there with Jonah in the belly of a fish. You don't know what's going to happen. All you know is you, you jumped overboard from the ship in the Mediterranean. Presumably you sank for a while. This great fish came along, swallowed you up. You don't know where you are now. It's been dark presumably a bit cold, kind of wet and slimy. I don't know what it's like in the belly of a fish, but I wouldn't be comfortable. And Jonah is there and he realizes what he's done. He's been running away from God. Of course, God is moving him back on track through this. But he comes and he, he offers up this prayer. And at the end of his prayer to God, he says, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. What a remarkable prayer to pray at the end of three days of being inside a big fish. He sings a song of thanksgiving. Paul also talks about thanksgiving. And he puts it quite plainly. Give thanks in, every, in all circumstances or in every situation. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in every situation. Doesn't matter where you are in your life, doesn't matter what's going on, but we're to give thanks. It's not always easy, but we look at people like Jonah giving thanks uh, from the belly of a giant fish. 
This is one thing that's hard to do sometimes, to give thanks in every situation. But it's because our thanksgiving doesn't come simply from the situation that we're in. And that's one of the big differences in a Christian celebration of thanksgiving is that we understand there's something deeper about the thanksgiving that we are, that we have towards God. People will be, others will be thankful because, you know, I've got a nice home, I've got food to eat, I'm in good health, and these sorts of things. We can be thankful for those as well. But our thanksgiving comes from a deeper place and a deeper thing. It comes from being in a right relationship with God and knowing that even if all else fails, if everything is taken away from us, our eternal life is secure. We have a salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And we can be thankful for that. R.C. Sproul writes about thanksgiving and he writes in the, he's writing about thanksgiving here and he's writing about all the things he's thankful for. And it's mainly he describes before this passage, he describes his family situation. He's thankful for his family. And he says, but then he says, most important of all, I am beloved of the Father. How could I ever begin to think it isn't enough? And when I fail, my Father forgives me. His Spirit works in me and I get better. Saint, Thanksgiving isn't a holiday to be observed, but a lifestyle to be practiced. Give thanks. And when you are done, do it again. He says it so well here that we need to be thankful no matter what our situation is because of what God has done. Because we know that God is with us, that God loves us. And no matter what struggles we face, what challenges we have at home or at work or at school, whatever challenges we may face even inside of us as we wrestle with issues inside of us, we know that God is with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And ultimately, in the end, at the end of all things, we will be with God. And that should be enough for us to be thankful for our whole lives. You know, it's kind of like our lives can be kind of like a, an airplane. And we've all been on airplanes. And sometimes when you're taking off in stormy weather, you know, the rain or not so much here in Vancouver, but the snow comes. <clears throat> and you can tell it's going to be a rough takeoff. And sure enough, it is. You know, you can see the, the rain streaming down outside the airplane as, as, it, as it takes off and starts to climb. The ride gets bumpy. It gets bumpier. You end up through the clouds. You can't see anything. You wonder how does the pilot know where he's going or if there's something in his way because he can't see anything. The ride is getting bumpier and bumpier. And, you want, and, and sometimes when it's really bad, you start to get a little worried and you don't, you're not feeling so good about being on this airplane. And then all of a sudden you come through the clouds. And you're, you, you get to see the whole picture. You see the blue sky. The sun is shining. And the clouds that were causing all the storm when you were on the ground, they look beautiful. They're white and fluffy and soft on top. They look like a big marshmallow. And the picture is different because your perspective is different. You've risen above the, the struggles. You've risen above the storm and you can see the whole picture. And that's what it's like. That's what our Christian life needs to be like. We can try and move above the, the storms of life because we know there's something greater. There's eternal life. Nothing has changed except our perspective. So we need to keep that right perspective, that eternal perspective, and then we can be 
full of thanks. And as we do that, as we're thinking on thankfulness, I want us to to come to the Lord's table now. If Brian could come and help me 